Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, your host, and well, until now, our guest on this podcast started working on the games, I don't know, from around 1998 to 2000, but our next guest began literally at the beginning. Uh, Daniel Pacheco, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. And I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm super excited to have you on because, as I just mentioned, you've been around since the very beginning of these games. And so you provide a unique perspective to me and also to our listeners. And I'm wondering if you can tell us as we start out with uh, everything, tell us the story of how you got started, how you got involved in the Salt Lake Games from the very early stages. Okay, and I'm glad you said the early stages rather than the beginning, because actually there's way pre-life before my time, and and I'll gladly share that. It's 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 been exciting, and just watching the reaction to your podcast already has been fun, because as you know, you you uh, did a send you sent a friend request to join the the former employees of Slock Facebook group which we have hundreds of members in there now, and we gladly welcomed you in yesterday. And uh, it's just exciting. But my story starts back in 1994, and there was way many years of, of bid committee before that that I was not involved with. So there'll be a lot more you can look into and find more exciting stories. The organization of the games, or the games were awarded, I guess, in 1995. Correct. But you actually started before the games were even awarded to Salt Lake City. Yes. Yes. In 1994 uh, is when I started. So just a little background. Um, I worked for the uh, United Way of Salt Lake from 85 to 89. And during that time frame, Mr. Tom Welch, was a campaign chairman for the United Way, and I got to work with Tom quite a bit. You know, and then we went our, our separate ways. And then uh, I moved away, and then I came back to Salt Lake, and I went, to, to, I went back to college to refresh my degree. And I was at Westminster in the marketing program, and I was looking forward to a um, June 1996 graduation. And all of a sudden, somebody calls me and says, hey, you know you have to do an internship before you graduate. I says, what? <laughs> so uh, I went to the meeting, not very excitedly, and, and found out that I had to do an internship. And they said, okay, we're going to be meeting again in, in a week, and you need to be ready to tell us where you're going to do an internship. I thought, okay, I wasn't too excited about it. Well, backtracking to my time with the, Olymp or with the United Way, I knew Tom, and I knew a gentleman by the name of Alan Barnes. He was my loaned executive. And one day I was downtown Salt Lake in the middle of June, and there was this um, big celebration going on down at the city county building. All kinds of people and excitement and everything, and I just kind of worked my way around checking it out, and I ran into Alan. And Alan was in and said, hey, great, I need you, I need you right now. And he says, come over here, and he handed me this pipe-looking thing. And I walked up, and he says, stand right here, and when you hear the big announcement, push the button. I said, okay, what is this? I'm standing there, and all of a sudden on a big screen, there appears all these people from Budapest. And they're sitting there cheering and cheering, and all of a sudden this very older, distinguished gentleman gets on. And they said, this is Juan Antonio Samaranch from the International Olympic Committee. 
And the quote goes, for the International Olympic Committee has decided to award the 2002 Winter Olympic Games to the city of Salt Lake City. And click, people were screaming, excitement, and confetti went off and everything like that. That was it. We got the games. And I'm saying, that was cool. Then I went home and thought, well, I'll probably never have anything to do with it. Well, then I back, then I come back to, I was at the internship, and they said, you have to have a place where you're going to do an internship. Mind you, I'd already had a career and was just refreshing my degree. And they said, you have to tell us where you're going to do your internship. And I said, I'm going to do it at the Olympics. And, of course, everybody says, yeah, right. We just got the games like two days ago. How are you going to get into the Olympics? I said, I know people. So I went home and real quickly jumped on the phone. Alan, Tom, help. I got to talk to you guys. He says, come on in. And eventually I talked to Bob Hunter. And Bob Hunter had me come in. I met with Brett Milburn and Jason Christensen. And those three were really my entree into what was then known as the Salt Lake Olympic Organizing Committee, S-L-O-O-C. And we were the bid committee. And from there, it just took off. Did you actually then start out as an intern or with those introductions, did you move into some kind of a different position? Oh, I was an intern. I assume that you had player. I I assume that over your long uh, tenure there in the organizing committee that you had different roles. Um, But what were what was that first role? And then how did that? evolve into the different roles that you played along that journey? Yes, I did. I had a very long role that continued right from 1994 all the way on through um, up until last year. I was still involved with some biathlon events. And I'll give you kind of the picture there. Um, when when I first started out, Bob and Jason and uh, and Brett were working on creating what we called the community department. And, and the goal of that department was to engage the residents of Utah in the games. That's it. Simple as that. Um, and I literally, as an intern, just went in a couple times a week. And all I was doing is I was clipping newspapers. I was going in and they had a stack of newspapers, the Salt Lake Tribune, Desert News, the Herald, the L.A. Times, the Atlanta Journal. New York Times, etc. And I just sat there and searched for any article there was related to Olympics or how it would impact games. Now, this is pre-Atlanta games. And we were just clipping all those articles, making stacks and stacks of copies so we could distribute among the management team. And that way they could quickly read up what was going on and just be prepared. You know, that was before really much even the internet was even going on. That just goes to show you just how different that time was. I mean, you're clipping newspapers out of physical copies of newspapers. Uh, Like you say today, we would just do Google searches and we would find those articles and then you would uh, compile those into something and then give them to the executive to study. But back then, uh, you actually had physical copies of newspapers. Amazing. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, so as we talk, you know, and, and I'm always cautious not to be a name dropper. But I know that this kind of helped just kind of put, put this all in the perspective. So at that time, the leadership team was, you know, because it was the bid committee. That bid committee was made up with Governor Levitt and all of the others and Tom Welch and Dave Johnson. 
And and then the ones that were, that was literally the first creation of a staff. And I'll probably leave some names off. But, you know, the initial people there were Tom and Dave. Um, oh, now I just lost her name. Um, Jill Beckstead was there. Gordon Crabtree. Um, Bob Hunter. Um, Mary Gaddy. Dave Baugh. Um, Jessica Matsumoto came in a little bit later. Um, and then we just started to just slowly expand. Diane Conrad came on board. Um, with Ranch Kimball. I mean, there's some names that you probably never even heard of before because we did transition over time. And, you know, since my experience, I've been out doing a lot of public speaking and, and I did some leadership training and I talk about leadership styles and whatnot. And I always refer back to the management team because during my tenure, I experienced the leadership of Tom Welch, of Frank Jockwick, of Mitt Romney, and Fraser Bullock, and that perfectly, per- perfectly falls into a summary of four different leadership styles. That's really interesting. You know, I I didn't join until two thousand, and so by that time, Mitt and Fraser and Ed Iden, you know that that triumvirate was was there leading the ship. But you were involved in multiple administrations. Tell us about those different leadership styles and how the committee transitioned from one administration to the next. Boy, now you're asking me to give away my, my secret on the uh, medicine wheel, which is leadership styles, but (laughs) here it is in a nutshell. um, If you look at it, it's called the medicine wheel. And if you look at the four different components on the North is the autocratic, the, the Buffalo, the leader down the bottom is the deer, the timid, the on the uh, left hand side is the bear, the, the you know policy procedure, and on the right side is the eagle, which is the vision. And you know, I always use the example that Tom was very much the deer and the eagle, and he had to be because he had to envision this whole thing and be the touchy feely, the relationship builder. And then Mr. Droplet came in, and he was very much of an autocratic and a bear and he was structures and policies and procedures and we brought in consultants and we brought in consultants to evaluate the consultants you know and then then um matt came through and matt was a great dynamic leader and i wouldn't say he was autocratic but he was very much of a mix of all of those and then when we had fraser who finished off the games because you got to remember that matt left right after the Olympics. And we still carried on through the Paralympics and closed down. And and Mitt's or uh, Fraser's style was very calming, very policy, but very touchy-feely. And he still had the big vision. So it just kind of bounces around and around those styles. You know, it's interesting. The games in Salt Lake experienced two seismic events. One was the scandal uh, in 1999. And the second was September 11th. And and uh, so you had these two huge events that occur in the middle of it, which in some respects could have put the games in jeopardy for you. What was it like having to experience those seismic events and how did you get through all of it? Wow. (laughs) You know, they are they were they were life experiences. And and in many ways, we can all relate to that now. 
because we're all relating in our own personal challenges that we might be facing. And we're experiencing it now here in Utah. I'm still here in Utah. I'm just around the corner from Salt Lake. I'm here in Tooele. We had our next 4.2 earthquake shaker yesterday and a couple days ago and the 5.7 recently. We have the COVID going on. Um, and you really find out during that time that a lot of your pre-planning, all of your preparation just has to fall into place. And it doesn't matter who's leading the ship. You have to keep moving. And that's what we did. You know, when when the scandal, or as Shelly Thomas, who you may recall was with our over our media department for a while there, she said it was a media crisis. It wasn't a scandal. You know, so it's perspective and how they move forward. And we had to maintain the image and address the issues, but keep on going. When 9-11 hit, you know, I remember very clearly that morning because I don't know if you ever knew about it. We used to have floor wardens and I was a floor warden for the 10th floor of the American tower. And, and that morning I'm driving in and I'm almost to the airport when, when the first plane struck and I'm driving in thinking I have with me my list, which happens to be all the employees on the 10th floor. Where is everybody? And it's like, Oh my God, Mitt's in Manhattan getting ready to announce the torch relay. Where's everybody else? And then he just kind of said, keep moving. And Frazier kept the group going. And we kept on moving until Mitt was able to come home and, and just keep us going. You know, Daniel, I always remember you in the office as someone who had a smile on their face all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you always had a smile. So yeah, we've talked about some serious things here, but I think it's time to to cheer up a little bit here. And uh, let's, let's let that smile shine through. So as you look back over those many years there in the organizing committee, uh, what are some of the really, I don't know, lighthearted, uh, humorous, interesting stories that you remember fondly from preparing and delivering the games? There are so many, and I know you gave me a little bit of a heads up, so I've been thinking, and I didn't want to prepare a list. So I, I started to write some things down in my Excel spreadsheet, and I put that aside, and I said, okay, I'm not going to do it. Um, I think I probably have to just kind of little give a little clarity of where, where I came from and how it evolved. Um, and the best way was I mentioned that the goal was to engage the residents in the games. And now you move all the way forward 20 years ago. Here's my resume. How did I succinctly state what did I do? Because that gives the framework. So bear with me. I'm just going to read this part right here. I finished off as a coordinator for community-related programs and activities geared to engaging Utah residents and instilling a sense of ownership of the games throughout the development and implementation of the Olympic and Paralympic Games played a key role in the development of education, environment, youth sport, and media activities. Outreach included implementing promoting games-related activities and curricula for 600,000 Utah students in grades K through 12. So what does that say? You know, it says that at the beginning in 1994-95, we worked together and created what was going to become the media department, what was going to become the environment, the arts and culture, youth sport, 
and education. So we, we, we developed the outlines of the programs, the initial goals, the initial budgets, which got changed over and over and over. <coughs> the leadership teams of each of those departments would come in and evolve and transition and move out. And all along the goal was keep the residents, keep the community involved. Why? Because basically Tom and Dave sold this state on the concept of the best games and we had to deliver it. And despite all the challenges, we had to make sure that not only did the residents from Capitol Hill and Park City and Deer Valley feel like they owned the games, but Provo needed to feel like they owned the games. And so did St. George and so did Moab. And that's what we did. We created education programs that reached out and touched, and touched those families. And the interesting thing about it, I think the the ultimate vindication is the public perception or public opinion of the games today is still extremely strong here, not just as you said in Salt Lake County, but throughout the state of Utah. And that doesn't happen unless you do an effective job of engaging all of the communities of Utah throughout the, the planning and delivery of the games. What were some of the things or some of the initiatives that you undertook to get everybody in the, all of the communities engaged and excited about the games? Okay. And, and you know, again, because it's over years that evolved. Some of the initial things that we did was with the education department, we created a structure. We went to the state, state office of education. We went to the parochial schools, the private schools, the charter schools. And we created a structure which we called as the district Olympic liaisons. So every school district had a liaison. They in turn had a school liaison at every school. So that whatever the messaging was, we could get it to them, whatever program, whatever activity, we could work through them to implement it. Because we were not about to have Little Miss Susie, third grade teacher, calling us from Goshen, Utah, asking if the mascots could show up. We had to have a structure in place. So we did that, and then we created programs that they could implement. And there was some pre-work that was done with the Sports Education and Values Foundation. That was a great group, which one of your other podcast members talked about with Steve Young. And they created that initial curriculum program. So we moved that forward and there were Olympic ambassadors. And then we had to change because of terminology that kind of faded away, but we carried the curriculum forward. Um, and there was a curriculum book, a final book. I've got it here somewhere. It's called Reach, which is available on, on the internet still today. Um, so that was a curriculum for the schools. And, and people could learn, kids could learn about flags and the colors and what the rings represent. And then in the in the youth sports department, which people may remember um, Bob Bills and um, Todd, Todd ended up the sports program, um, which I think is still over at the Oval. But we created the youth sports program for, where we kept saying we don't want our games to have these venues just sitting empty like Nagano had done. We wanted the Olympic Park to be used over and over. And we created the youth, youth program where we, we identified kids that were in gymnastics and got them into in, doing uh, freestyle aerials. We went out to the football teams and we found kids 
that could push a bobsled. And we put a bobsled on wheels. And we created this program that I then was given the challenge of how do we get this program out to the school? And I created a map to where over the course of four years, we took that youth sports program to every junior high in the state of Utah. We did the same thing through the education program with an arts project where we would do, um, art. we'd come up with a theme, cool winter games, inspiration, and all these different themes so that each year, every school would have an art drawing contest. And then they would pick their winners at the school level to the district level to slock. And then we framed those. We framed the top pictures and we used them for decoration in the venues. We used them at the uh, Olympic Villages. Um, and then we twisted that. We picked some of the top artwork and turned it into Olympic pins. So, I mean, I got to go out all over the state and help give presentations of a, a little Johnny that drew this cool leaf and how we turned that artwork into a pin. And Johnny got one of the first first edition pins. Most people, when they think of the games, they think of the competition and they think about the athletes. And of course, they are at the heart of the games and, and those things that you see on television. But m many, many people don't understand the wider impact that the games can have on the community. So thank you, Daniel, for bringing that to the surface, really bringing that to light. I think that's a really great story. I'm going to come back to my funny story, though, because we like to have fun on the podcast. Okay. So any items or any kind of experiences okay, you yes. look back at and it just makes you chuckle? Yes, yes, there's there's one now, and I was, I was holding off, and uh, I know it's been many years, so I can get away with it, and we're not getting in trouble. One of the times that Bob Bills, we were getting ready to do an event up at the Olympic Park with the bobsled and skeleton, because we used to bring both Matt and the governor and everybody up to come up and practice and all that. And one of the high schools, I think it was Roy High School, or Syracuse had built one of the bobsleds and painted it up and got it all prepared for us. I'm up at the Olympic Park and Bob calls me and says, quick, we need the bobsled from Roy and we need it now. I quickly call Al Mattis off over in transportation. I fly down, get with Suburban, run up to Roy, we throw the bobsled in the back of a Suburban, drop the seats down, crammed it in there, slammed the door shut, windshield and the back window pops right out oh my goodness <laughs> okay so like crap the governor's going to be there i need this bobsled up there i don't have time to deal with it drive i'm cruising down i-15 now remember i-15 was totally ripped apart because we were redoing construction so i'm zipping in and out through through i-15 getting up to park city and all along i'm saying wow i'm driving a bobsled down i-15 <laughs> <laughs> It was awesome. We got it up there. And eventually they replaced that windshield. There was a window. Well, well, that was a shattering experience then. And yes, I-15 was like the bobsled track. Um, I remember they remember they covered it with syncrete, which bubbled up and popped yep. up. And yep. oh my goodness, what a fiasco. And I I know that at the time residents 
were not happy with all of the construction that was going on and there were some complaints. But by the time the games were here, we had tracks, we had an expanded freeway Mm -hmm. and that infrastructure still benefits us today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because people were blaming it all on the Olympics, you know, whether whether or not the fact that the transportation remodel was already planned, they blamed it on the Olympics. And, you know, our partners out there in the community had to just kind of work with us. And that's where we would just keep people involved. And, you know, that's why we did the events we did. Now, Daniel, you mentioned that you stayed involved after the games were over. They were a big part of your life. What was the personal and professional impact of working for the organizing committee for you? Well, part of it, and this gets into a whole other area of the personal benefit. Again, I had I'd started off thinking that I wasn't going to be involved with it. And then I just caught, I literally caught that Olympic fever, the spirit of the games. And, and I learned about the Olympic torch. And then one of the things that happened back in 1995 was that the, the advanced team for the Atlanta torch relay was coming along, making their preparations for their relay. And I ended up helping them. And then in about May of 1996, the torch was arriving up in Ogden area, Tremont. And I was invited to go up and help greet them to take them into Salt Lake. We did it. We get to Salt Lake City, back to the same place, city county building, late at night, fireworks are going off. And I didn't realize that I was the connection between the SLOC leadership team and the leadership team from the Atlanta Torch Relay. So I'm introducing them. and. Billy Payne from Atlanta says, hey, Mr. Welch, thanks for letting Daniel help. And Tom says, oh, great. If he's helpful, take him with him. You can have him. And we're like, what? Literally, I was invited and jumped on the Olympic torch relay to Atlanta. And I was off, thinking I was going to get kicked off the bus by the time we got to Echo Canyon. No. We jumped on a train, went to Evanston, went down to Denver. I thought, sure, I'm getting kicked off. This went on up until Atlanta. By the time I was in Atlanta, the Atlanta torch relay team assumed that I was going to be the torch relay director for Salt Lake. I got to experience every aspect of the torch relay, from the setup trucks to the advanced teams to working with the media to, to greeting mayors and governors in each city and town. and. All along, we kept hearing this really cool music. And I know this is jumping to one of your questions later. Neil Diamond, we're coming to America, and on and on and right. So I hear it every day, every day, three times a day, torch relay all the way to Atlanta. By the time we get to Atlanta, I drive in the pilot car into into Atlanta of the torch relay, literally driving down the street, pushing people away. Come back to Utah at the end of the game, so in August of 96 and to help map out what's going to be the Olympic flag relay for Utah, then the scandal hit. So everything got put on hold, everything changed. And, and then later, you know, it just kind of evolved. But I did that whole torch relay, which is an awesome experience. And then I, my job became going out to schools and community events, playing this video over and over for Utah residents. And what was the music? We're coming to America today, you know. There, there it is, Neil Diamond again. 
And it just, it just reignited that fire daily. And, and it just, it gives me chills to even think about it still. That's amazing. So is that your song choice then, Neil Diamond, Coming to America? Oh, okay, well, we're going to add that you to the that. Spotify yeah. playlist. And anybody who wants to can go on Spotify and they can just look for the Salt Lake 2002 retrospective playlist. And all of the songs that everyone has nominated will be on there. So thank you very much for nominating that song. You know, another bullet point on my list of things, uh, assignments for you uh, was the restaurant. So, um, yes, of course, times have changed and not all the eateries are around that were there during the preparation for the games. But is there a particular restaurant or restaurants that you'd like to go to for lunch or, you know, breakfast before work or dinner after work? What was your favorite restaurant to go to when you were working for Salt Lake 2002? I'm going to cheat and give you two different names. One was Gourmandise, the bakery, which many of those that were throughout the games, throughout the, the towards the end there, will recall the bakery, which was the place to go to, just around the corner on 2nd South and 3rd West, or 3rd East. And I'm going to mention Lamb's, Lamb's Cafe. And the reason I mention Lamb's is because that is where my understanding, a lot of the whole concept of Salt Lake bidding for the games took place. That's where the leadership team first said, we need the games to promote Utah as a destination sports location. That's the birthplace of Salt Lake's game. All right. Well, we're definitely going to put those on the map. Gourmandise has already been nominated by more than one person, and I'm a big fan of Gourmandise as well. I love to go there and get eclairs and macarons and all kinds of yummy goodness uh, from Gourmandise. And Lamb's Restaurant will definitely put on there as well. Daniel, you've already given us a goosebump moment with the torch relay. Any other <laughs> goosebump moments to kind of close us out? There are just so many different things. Many may recall when we had the uh, tornado hit Salt Lake, totally unexpected. I remember I was in one of the meetings with an, one of the school districts, and we were there talking, and all of a sudden I get a phone call from the office that, that things are just flying around, literally, up here. And it impacted us. And, it, you know, it, it also was another one of those threats to the games, whether we were going to continue on and what, what damages were going to be done. and then. From that event, we expanded, and Diane Conrad with the Environment Department, we ended up coming with the coming out with a special Olympic pin of the of the of the tornado. That was a fun one. Um, yeah, the tornado was interesting. I actually wasn't working for Sluck at the time. I was working for IBM in Seattle, and my wife, who was uh, in Salt Lake, I was commuting. Uh, she she called me and said, "We just had a tornado." <laughs> We don't have tornadoes in Salt Lake. No, no, seriously, we had a tornado, and uh, then I saw right. it later on in the in the news. Uh, I was flabbergasted that we had a tornado in Salt Lake City. Yep. What what a crazy yep. thing to have happen in Salt Lake. Now the other thing, if I if I'm just going to expand on the the touching moment for me went on throughout the whole year, the whole time frame, and that's because you may recall, and as you still drive around Utah, you see the Olympic license plates. Well, the story behind that was Senator Scott Howell was very involved with, 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 with having the Olympic plates put together and having money put aside to make sure that the children got to go to the games. 
Well, again, talk about lunch. One day, Judy Stanfield, which was the later education director, she and I were at lunch at the bakery and we're talking about, okay, this slush fund of or this this fund of money's coming through the license plates. We've got to find a way to get kids to the games. And we literally sat there and talked about how are we going to take children from the classroom up to the Olympic venues to watch these events? And I just created, I just told you the name of it. Classroom to events was created. And we had the goal of taking children from the classroom up to the test and training events so that we prepared to take them to the Olympic events. And over the course of the time, we took the student, the children to over 300,000 different events. And, and not only were they there just for fun, our venue teams used those kids. We used them as spectators to test everything out. Like when we created the Olympic Oval and built this massive, beautiful building and built it full of ice and then said, oh, my God, what happens when you put in 600 heated bodies in there? Let's test it. Daniel, get the buses. And we load them in. Or in the 1999 figure skating event at the Delta Center at that time. How are we going to test out bus transportation? Simple. Bring in 500 buses over the course of one week and surround the Delta Center. And what did we do? We are not having any buses unloading any spectators at the Delta Center. And we created parking rights, you know, and it just continued to continue. And, you know, Soldier Hollow, how do you turn the mountainside into a whole spectator venue? You know, and Phil Jordan just... I'm sure he's still pulling his hair out over all the kids I took him, but he also loved it so much that last year he had me take kids up to the biathlon event. Wow. Well, you've got memories for days. I mean, we could probably have this conversation forever, but if people um, who are listening to this podcast, you mentioned at the outset that you very graciously accepted my plea to be invited to the former slot uh, group on Facebook, and, and you are kind of a moderator of that group. If people want to learn more about that or learn more about what Daniel Pacheco is doing, how do they get to that group or how do they best contact you on Facebook? Okay. So personally, I'm listed under there. You just search me up as Daniel Pacheco and in, in Facebook. But if you're a former employee, and again, I clarify employee, you just search up the Facebook group, which was a former employees of the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. And let me see, former staff of Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter Games. And, and I say that as an employee because that group was created when we were getting ready for our first reunion. And, and it was gonna be used for messaging to the employees, the activities. And we had to be very cautious because we were not opening the door for all 20,000 volunteers. And We've maintained that group to just the employees. Sorry, not all the consultants, not all the partners, not all the sponsors. Because it's our family. This is our private family group. So we'll check the list before you come in. All right. Excellent. Daniel, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your Friday to join us. Listeners, please uh, like and subscribe to our Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, which you can find just about anywhere. Google, Apple, Spotify, 
iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more, and just about any podcast player on your mobile device. Just search for Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective. Thank you so much. 